So last week we saw that in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, God's presence is the answer to all of our needs. Everything that we see wrong with this world will be made right when Jesus comes back. And all of our issues that we have, our need for justice, our need to be delivered from evil, our need for purpose, our need for satisfaction, our need for intimacy, all of those are satisfied and found and solved when Jesus' presence comes back when he returns. And for, our, for the Christian, our longing is for Jesus to t- return right now as soon as possible because until he comes, nothing that we do will fully make all things right. And so we long for him to come when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more early deaths, no more sin. And so we, with that we say, come Lord Jesus. But as we know, we do not see Jesus physically right now. He's not right here reigning on the earth exactly the way he will one day. And so last week we talked about that question that every single person asks sometime in their life, especially an atheist and especially kids. And all of us presumably have been kids at one point. So the question goes like this, hey, if God is real, why can't I see him? Right? We've all wondered this. Why is God invisible? And we know that Jesus will reveal himself very soon when he comes back. And for some, that's going to be the greatest joy ever when we see him. And I just can't wait for that day. Like, no way. Like, you're finally here. The wait is over. I can't wait for that. And I hope that we are, will increasingly become a people that just cannot wait for that. That any longing in the world that we have will be nothing compared to our longing to see his face. But also that day will be a day of great terror for some. Some will not say, no way, you're finally here. They'll say, no way, you're actually real. No way. The stories are true. No, I need more time. You're real. And that will be a day of dread that I do not want and wish for anyone. So that's why we've given our life to share the good news that that doesn't have to be the case for anybody if they're to trust in Jesus. And that does not have to be the case for those people in the Himalayans. Thank you, God, for the Burkles going there. But here's the question. Until Jesus returns, how does God reveal himself to the world? How does God tangibly reveal himself to this world that does not see him? So here is the main point that I'm going to be hammering on and unpacking. God's presence is made visible through the church, through us. God's presence is made visible through the church. So we're going to unpack how, how did this come to be? How do we show the world that God is real? And how do we show what God is like? Last week we started from the beginning and we're going to do the same thing to trace back how we got to this place. So remember, when God created the world, it was very good. And the greatest thing about the beginning was that God was right there. I mean, I said this last week, but I don't want us to be callous. Can you imagine the day when he was there and there was no sin, no struggle? He was right there, and and the, the language in Genesis is so beautiful. He was walking with man in the cool of the garden. This beautiful picture. He was walking with, we were walking with him face to face. But man, human, humanity, we desire to be our own God. We didn't want anyone to call the shots, and all of us have just been like Adam and Eve. We, we, wanted to, we thought we knew better, and we rebelled against God. And when that happened, everything went 
wrong. Everything was cursed. Everything that we know that is good, that we enjoy in this world, has been twisted in some way. And so all of us know that feeling of enjoying the most wonderful thing, and yet even the most wonderful thing is spoiled. Even a vacation that we plan for for months can be spoiled easily with a sick kid. Even a marriage we've been excited about happening, one person could die of cancer a year in. Everything good is now twisted because because it's almost like the core of the world was just removed. The core of the earth was been removed. And so everything is spiraling downward when our king is not rightfully reigning on the earth. But most importantly, the worst thing about the fall, and this is the, the, the more technical term that theologians call the fall, the worst thing about the fall is that we lost his presence. We lost God. And so God comes searching for Adam and Eve, and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam hides, and he tries to cover up his shame. And this is the crazy paradox we mentioned last week, is that every single person who's ever lived is hiding from God at one, in one sense. They're hiding from God, they're fleeing from him. But the paradoxical thing about it is that simultaneously, they're longing for him because they were made for him. So every unbeliever that we know, and any unbelievers who could be with us, who will hear this message is simultaneously hiding and fleeing from God and yet deeply aching for God and wanting to be reunited, wanting for this great chasm that's between God and man to be reunited. And so this is the crazy paradox, but God in his kindness had created the most counterintuitive plan to redeem all the people and he would use people to redeem people and ultimately use a person, a God-man person to make all things new. But I'm giving a spoiler alert. So eventually God chooses the people of Israel to make his presence known to the nations. What does he do? You remember he creates a ta- gives them a tabernacle, which is a, a tent that eventually turned into a temple. And God's presence would dwell right in the midst of this temple. And there would be a visible sign that his presence would, there, would be there. There would be just the smoke and, and glory and, and light and people would know that God is there. And so, unlike other nations that would serve different gods, and you would say, Where your, where your, where's your God? And they would point to a stone idol or maybe to a mountain. To Israel, they would say, hey, he's right there. I mean, he's, he's home. You can see him. He's, he's like right there. See, God would dwell in the Holy of Holies in some way, in some special way, and the Holies of Holies was kind of where heaven was meeting earth. A little bit of heaven was right there. See, Although the Holy of Holies gave the world a picture that God was real, it didn't give the world a picture of who God, what God was like. And so God also gave the law to the Israelites. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, there's some really funky things that is very foreign for our Western context, especially if you don't know the original context. But if you read it carefully, overall it is beautiful. It is brilliant. It is so beautifully made in a way that shows the perfect justice and care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, that, that people will never be in debt, and there, will, there won't be systemic debt and cycles of poverty. There's all this beautiful law that shows this peace and unity within the, king, within the kingdom. And that was designed so that Israel would give the world, give the nations a picture of what it looks like when God is reigning. And so if you want to know what God is like, what Yahweh, the name of God, is like, look at the people. Look at the people, because if you see the way they interact with each other, to see the way God governs them, then you'll get a picture of, the law, of God, because God's law was almost, is, is, a, is a part of his character. 
It reveals his heart. What is he like? What does he love? What does he hate? And so Israel showed the world God is real, not only because God was among them, but also because of the way they lived it out. But as we know the story, they did not live it out. They did not honor his presence, and things went bad. And there are limitations to this way for God to reveal himself to the world. See, the temple was limited because it was geographically set in a place. So if you wanted to meet with Yahweh, you would have to come far to Jerusalem. So limited in one place. Also, it was primarily for Jews only. There were some stipulations for people who weren't Jewish. And I'm assuming by a read of those who were here, none of us are Jews by blood and by birth. So none of us would have access to the temple, true access. And then the only one who would be able to go into the actual temple, the Holy of Holies, was the high priest, and it would only be once a year. So you see the limitation to God's presence would be, was severely limited. And so God changes the game. He comes, and he comes as a person. John 1.14 will be up on the screen eventually. John 1.14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's presence is no longer in a building, it's now in a person. And this person is mobile. A person could go to people. And it's not just going to Jews, it's going to all kinds of people. And it's not just going to different ethnicities, it's going to the people that no one cared about that nobody wanted to touch. Now this good news in this presence is meeting people where they're at. And Jesus is giving people a sneak peek of what, what it looks like when God reigns. If you look at Luke chapter 4, and if you do have a Bible, Luke 4, 18, we're going to just touch on this briefly, but it's worth looking at. If not, it's on the screen for those of you guys who can't. Luke 4, 18 is just such a beautiful passage because it sums up much of Jesus' ministry. Not all of it, but much of it. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news or gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. How beautiful is this? This is what Jesus does. This is what he brings. And this is not just physical this is primarily spiritual. Because you could all day help people physically, but if they're spiritually lost, they're lost in the long term. So Jesus meets their physical needs and their spiritual needs. And Jesus touched those that nobody would touch and restored cleanliness to those who were impure. And Jesus hung out with the people that, hey, you don't hang out with those people. And so if you guys have ever wondered why our mission statement says, especially those who are far from God, it's because Jesus cared about those who are far from God. And we want to be like Jesus. And he cared about those that nobody else cared about, that others would overlook. But yet, Jesus could not just give a sneak peek to his kingdom. He had to deal with a fundamental issue, and that's our hearts. Our sin issue. Our corrupt hearts. And so, the great news, the gospel, the greatest news in the world is that Jesus lived the life that all of us were supposed to live. A life surrendered to God. And although he had no sin, he knew no sin, he didn't even know what it was like, 
he was treated on the cross like he was the greatest sinner who ever lived. And on the cross, God poured out all the wrath that you and I deserve for our rebellion. On the cross, Jesus died for us. And not just for us, instead of us. On the cross, God destroyed, ultimately, sin and suffering and death through sin, suffering, and death. Jesus took sin and suffering and death upon himself so that his people could never have to experience death anymore. And that's the great news that anybody who wants to be reconciled with God can be because Jesus already made the way. And then three days later, he was resurrected, came back to life that showed that his death was received. His payment paid in full all of our sins for those who trust in Jesus. And so if you want Jesus, you can have him if you trust in him. And so we are always going to be up here and always available to talk more what it means to follow Jesus and trust in him. And if you have any questions, we would love to be with you to help you in any way. However, like I said, there's limitations to the temple. There's actually limitations to Jesus. Now, I know that sounds heretical, but there's actually limitations to Jesus. Go to John 16, verse 7. It'll be on the screen. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And who is this talking about? Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. But think about this. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy passage. Jesus, are, did you hear what you just said? Are you, you're telling me that it's, to, it's for our benefit that you leave us? Can you imagine me saying that to my wife? Honey, it is, it is to your advantage that I leave you. What, what, what's better than your presence? Can you imagine how easy it would be for us to witness, to tell people about Jesus? We'd just be like, hey, come here. He's right here. Jesus, tell, tell them the good news. Jesus, do something. Show them you're real, right? He's right here. It would be so wonderful. But why is it such good news? It's good news because it is to our advantage because he sends us a helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit that will fill us. And so now, not only is it, not only is God's presence mobile in one person, it's now in all of us who trust in him. And we're taking God's presence everywhere we go. So the temple went from a fixed location to now a person, and then now to his people, spreading around as we have the Spirit. But, but more than just a physical limitation, the other thing the Holy Spirit does is it helps us with our incapability of following Jesus faithfully. Because that was the issue in the Old Testament. Over and over the Old Testament, you'd see Israel constantly falling back into old patterns and giving themselves to other idols and loving other things more than God. And so God needs to deal with our hearts. And so at the, at the cross... Jesus dealt with the penalty of sin, and then when he send, sent his spirit to us at Pentecost, he has given us the power over sin. And one day when Jesus comes back, he's going to deal with the presence of sin. No more. And so, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit because we need him. The Father and Son send the Spirit. Now, look at this next passage in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So right now, the world cannot see the Spirit, cannot see God. But how will they see him? Through us. And the Spirit is dwelling among them, but there will be a day coming, which happens at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit will be in God's people. And so just as the Father sent the Son to the world, the Father and Son send the Spirit to us, and then, check out John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so, even so, I am sending you. So there's this beautiful progression. The Father sends the Son. Then the Son and the Father send the Spirit. And then the, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they send us to bring the presence to the world. God's presence to the world. Now, how does God reveal himself to the world? The church, us. Now, let's go a layer deeper. If you go to 1 Corinthians 3.16, which was our main passage. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Let me make a couple of notes here. This word you is tricky because in English, most people don't like to say y'all, except people who are from the South like myself. I'm actually from Georgia and sometimes I'm from California depending on the situation. And we like to say y'all because it's very efficient. You're, you're saying multiple things at one time. But in the Bible, in the original language, it's always clear if it's speaking about a plural group of you, like you all, or you. And almost every time in the New Testament, you is plural. Just know that. Almost every time you see you, just think you all. Or if you want in your Bible, if you feel comfortable, and with pencil, you could put you, and then you could add, you can scratch it all and say y'all. Because it's so important, because as Americans or Westerners, we typically think very individualistically. So when we read, the, read it, we're like, oh, me. But what I want you to know that this passage in 1 Corinthians 3.16 is, is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit dwells God's people together, collectively, that we house the Spirit of God and we show the Spirit of God together. And this is significant. But before we overlook that, imagine the insanity, insanity, insanity of the statement, insanity of this statement. Look at 1 Kings 8, verse 10 and 11. See, in 1 Kings 8, this is a picture right after Solomon dedicates the temple. The Holy of Holies is filled with the glory of the Lord, and it's overwhelming them. It just comes down, and they're like, whoa, and they can't even be there. And if you imagine a Jew who was there that day to experience this, and then for them to hear you say, that's in me. That spirit that you read in 1 Kings 8, that's in me. That's in the people of God now. I, I can imagine being like, just stop. Just, that's, that's not even funny. That's not even, do you think that's a joke? That's stupid. There's no way the Spirit of God, you mean the God of the universe who created everything, is now in people? <laughs> You're crazy. And if you grew up in church, the sad thing is you hear this all the time, and so we, we don't think, li- we think much of it. Oh, yeah, God's in us. No big. God is in you. I mean, that's insane. God is in us. And what's even more insane, insane is if you read 1 Corinthians, the context, the Corinthian church was all messed up. They were full of, of, of foolish people. And so Paul's saying that it's just insane. 
it just, it just is crazy. I keep saying insane. I, I do know more words than insane, but I feel like insane is the proper word. And notice this language right here in 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, do you not know? It's not in this one. But do you not know? And he says it later in 1 Corinthians 6. It's this idea of, hey, you guys know this, but don't you know? Don't you guys? It's like me saying, hey, don't you guys know you're full of the Spirit? When most of you, I know most of you, you guys will say, of course I know that. It, Paul is trying to remind them, which suggests to me that these truths are easily forgotten. That you can live for many years maybe, or many seasons, with some of these great realities and that you not living at all like it's true. And the Corinthians were not living inconsistent to this reality that the Spirit of God was there with them. See, now that I've said that we are now God's way to make His presence visible to the world, how do we do that? Now let's go to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I'm going to skip a part of it and go to the heart that I'm emphasizing. Go, therefore, and make disciples, which is our mission at All People's Church. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Which is so, so sweet. Because remember, Matthew chapter 1 starts off that God is with us. His name is Emmanuel. And Matthew 28 ends with this beautiful picture. I'm still with you. I'm leaving. I'm being ascending. But I'm sending my spirit. I'm going to be with you. But what I want to focus on is this line here. It says this. Part of making a disciple is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commend you. In other words, teaching them to follow everything that Jesus taught. And so just like the Israelites were called to be obedient, and depending on their obedience to the law would show the world that Yahweh is real and that he is who he says he is and that he's worth following, we likewise, the way we follow Jesus together, the way we care for one another, the way we love one another, will affect if people believe that God is real. Will affect what kind of image people have of God by the way they look at us. What is, God's li- what is God like, Sam? Well, my hope is one day I say, hey, come be part of our church. Check us out. See the way we love each other. See the way we live. And then you will know what God is like. See, in the Old Testament, it's come and see. Come here. Come to our temple. Come and see what Yahweh's all about. And now in the New Testament, it says, hey, you take that temple and you go. You go take it on a roadshow. You take it to the people. Go and tell where people are. And that is why our mission statement says that we are following Jesus in everyday life because people need to see what Jesus is like, not on a Sunday only, not on a service when we have our Sunday best on, but what are we like at home with our kids? When the door is closed, when we're tired, when we're playing, when we're eating, in the everyday stuff of life. And that's why our mission is all about how do we follow him in everyday life and how do we help others join us in this? Now, let me talk about some implications of this idea that the Holy Spirit is in us and that we're a temple. Number one, first implication is that God is with us. And so if we're ever alone, we we have to remember and hold on that God is with us. And God is with us with each other. 
that's such a beautiful truth. God is with us. And he's with us through his people. Number two, the spirit of God empowers us. Jesus deals with the penalty of sin on the cross. And then now with the Holy Spirit, he's given us the power over sin. We now have the Holy Spirit and we can put to, the, to death the deeds of the flesh, as Romans chapter 8 says. We have power over our addictions. We have power over, over these things. Albeit imperfectly, because Jesus has not come back yet. But we have been given power over over sin. Number three, the Spirit of God requires a level of holiness. See, in Ezekiel, the people did not give a rip that God was among them. They didn't care. They thought that because God was among them that they would get a free pass and they were giving themselves all kinds of idols, loving all kinds of gods, all kinds of sin. And eventually we see in Ezekiel, the Spirit of God leaves the temple. And so it's empty. And if you read Jeremiah, there was this reoccurring theme that they would be like, hey, the temple of the Lord, we got the temple of the Lord, we're okay. You see, we got the temple, the Shekinah's right there, the glory's right there, we don't need to follow God and actually listen to him, we got that. And, and the similar thing, we kind of do that in the church. I don't really need to follow Jesus or become like him. Hey, I've been going to church my whole life. So instead of saying the temple of the Lord, we say, the church, the church, I've been part of the church, I go to Sunday school, I've been doing these different things. But the Spirit of God in us requires and demands a level of holiness, set-apartness, given ourselves to Jesus. The Spirit of God cannot dwell in people who are wicked, who are constantly living like the world, loving what the world loves, laughing at what the world laughs, hating what the world hates, loving what the world loves. And so the Spirit of God, when He comes into our lives, He starts to transform us and starts to clean house. And finally, I want to say that God is best displayed through the community. Now, he is displayed for sure in nature. God is definitely explained and shown in the gospel through the scriptures. But one way that is often neglected, so I shouldn't say best, but one way that is especially powerful is that God, his character and his reality is shown through our community. See, in the past, whenever I would think about the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, I would sometimes be like, all right, God, I'm going to go to work now, and I just pray that I would show you to the world. And I want to bring the, the kingdom of God wherever I go. Help, help me, come with me. But more as I study scriptures, I think that I'm going to still pray those things, but it's shifting to now, God, help me show that you're real with my family. Help, me, help us show that God is real as a community. But so often we think individually, oh, we're all going to have a holy huddle here and say, break. And then we all go and go to our individual places. But that's why we've organized our church the way we have, to where we're doing it as a community so the world can give a gl- look at it and give a glimpse, get a glimpse of what it looks like when God reigns among a people, how we care for one another, how we love one another, how we handle conflict, how we have unity and we forgive one another, how we love people who are not like us, how we're full of people who are not like us and who come from crazy backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds and so forth. That is how we can make visible God to this world. So it's not just about us having personal holiness and like not getting a drink if we go out with friends Oh my gosh, you know, you didn't drink. You're like, as if those little things like that really show the world that God's real. So I, I am not negating 
personal holiness. But what I'm saying, personal holiness plus community love. And the way we love each other and the way we love together, that will be such a powerfully compelling picture that God is who he says he is. And I think the world does not take us seriously often, not believe that God is who he says he is because of our own personal lives and because of our communities. I mean, you ask the random person on the street, hey, what do you think about Christians? What are the words that come up? Judgmental, divided, unloving, stingy, whatever it is. We've given the world reasons to doubt that God is real. And that's why there's books even written called, there's one book that says, Lord, help me, save me from your followers. It's just so sad. Every day, the way we live and love with each other is giving the world reasons to doubt or reasons to believe. And I just, I beg, beg of God to help us be a community that is unignorable, that they cannot ignore the hope of glory that is seen in us. And so this is how we as a church are making God visible. We have organized our church into something called missional communities. This is going to be annoying, huh? Missional communities, there's a slide for this, is a mid-sized family of missionary servants who are committed to making disciples by doing two things. I'm going to just hold it up this whole time. By loving one another like a family and loving the world through word and deed or a people group or a ministry. And the reason why we did this is because this size gives us an ability to love one another intentionally, to know each other and yet be known, but also we're large enough that we can come around families and people and care for them in ways that one couple should not do by themselves, that would get buried under, burden, uh, under really hard situations, that together we can come together. And that's why what we're trying to focus on doing in July is making sure we have two missional communities that are all coming around a mission and that we're committed to loving one another. This is another application of our logo. I mentioned our logo that's on these signs, the square coming down on triangle. Um, Like I said, it's not some cultish thing. Nice. But it's a picture of the New Jerusalem, of God's presence coming down, where no longer will God's presence be limited, but it'll be all throughout the world. But it also doubles as a picture of what we want to be. We want to be a people that gives a, a foretaste of the end times church. See, because when we look at that passage, Revelation 21 and 22, we see a picture that is a church full of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People who are rich, people who are poor, people who are from all kinds of backgrounds. And we want to give the world a foretaste of that reality. And we also want to be a, a church that looks like that in such a way that the world says, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that one day. That the words and deeds that we exercise would show the world that Jesus is real. That the people who make up our our church will give a picture that Jesus is real. That the way we love each other will give the world a picture that Jesus is real. Let me give two quick qualifications as I say this. If you're wondering, if you call yourself a Christian and you wonder why, the presence, if, you, if truly it's true that the Holy Spirit is in you, but yet it doesn't seem that big of a deal, that it doesn't make much of a, he doesn't make much of a difference in your life, there's two possibilities. 
one is very scary, and that's you're deceived. And the scary thing about being deceived is you don't know that you're deceived. That's why you're deceived. And that you actually don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in someone's life, it transforms everything. Not fully, but truly. Or the other option is that the Holy Spirit is indeed in you, but you've lived your life so disconnected from community, so disconnected from God's Word. You've been surrounded by influences that have snuffed the Spirit, that suppressed the Holy Spirit. And so your life does not look like you have the Holy Spirit. And that's why we have our community that we want you to join and be part of so that you can be surrounded by a community that will encourage you and help you on your journey. But with that said, there is no way that you can have the Holy Spirit and go decades and seasons long living in perpetual rebellion and sin. Because the Holy Spirit, if truly is in you, will bring you back. And here's the second qualification. The Holy Spirit is only in those who are forgiven. He can only dwell in those who that God has cleaned house and made ready for the Holy Spirit. That God has made new. And if, if, if you're not sure that's you, we would love to talk to you how that could be true of you. Now let me conclude and bring this to an end. I don't hate a lot of things, but I do hate this mic. It's going to be real. Dale, should we switch to a handheld with the help? Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Okay, thanks. So let's conclude this. How does God reveal himself to the world? He does through the church, us. We have the great opportunity to make him real to the church, to the world through us, the church. And until he comes, we are the answer to the question, where's God? We are the answer to the question of, why can't I see him? We are. We're the answer. The way we love each other, the way we follow Jesus in every part of our lives makes God visible to the world. So you remember when Jesus returns, he will solve all our needs. He will solve the injustice of this world. He will bring healing to the nations. He will solve our issues for longing, our, our, our need for purpose. But until Jesus returns, we are giving the world a foretaste of that. The justice that's among us, the peace that's among us, the unity that is among us, we're giving them a taste of what it looks like when Jesus comes. And if you've been around Christianity any length of time, you've probably seen the opposite of this. The church has given you plenty of reasons to believe that God isn't who he says he is. And I will say that that will not be different with us too. We will let down people. We will let down one another. But by God's grace, we will increasingly give people an accurate picture of who God is. Imperfectly, as we will. That we will continue to stumble, but yet we will continue to get up by the strength of the Spirit to love one another. And by God's grace, we will give the world plenty of reasons to believe. Imagine what it would look like if the most powerful evidence that Jesus is real would not be a great apologetic argument or a great new gospel track that we can give people or a new archaeological discovery that shows that the ark was real, but us, that we would be the greatest apologetic, the greatest pointer that God is real. What if every member here took that seriously, took that upon themselves, that no longer thinking individually but as a family, that we together can show the world what God is like 
by the way we love each other and the love the world together. And so, all people's church, let's make God visible to the world together.